Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory, governance, and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. Welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Mr. Dominic Frisbee, glad to have you back. Thanks very much, Robert. I, I'm looking forward to our weekly conversations. <laughs> I have to revise during the week to, to brush up my knowledge. Yeah, so this is our, our third session together. Uh, we've been doing these once a week. And um, yeah, it's given us a lot of time, I think, to explore the material and, and decide what topics to go into. And I think today we're going to start with a name that a lot of people are familiar with, probably from their days in the swimming pool. But uh, I don't, I honestly don't even know the story behind Marco Polo. So maybe you, you mentioned you wrote an article about it recently. Maybe you could enlighten us. Yeah, well, we talked about him a little bit in the last show, and I just happened to write an article about him this week. And, and there's some really funny stories. Um, Marco Polo was a Venetian. He's described as a Venetian explorer, as, as that is someone from Venice. And we tend to associate Venice with you know, this tiny, beautiful city built on water. But it's the story of Venice is actually incredible. And it's a real testament to free markets and individual enterprise and having no rulers. Mm. And so it's thought that with all the Goths and the Huns and the various other um, barbaric tribes that were invading Rome as Rome sort of collapsed in, I guess, around about four or 500, around about that kind of time. There were some Romans who fled and the only way they were safe from these marauders was the marshes. Hmm. So they fled into the marshes where no one could get them. And then they found that when they were in the marshes, they had direct access to the sea and actually, uh, they didn't need to go back to mainland Italy at all. They could just look outwards towards the Adriatic. And so they gradually started trading uh, via the network. And, and what Venice had a great tendency to do was import something. It would import metal or cloth or whatever, and then make it into something else and then sell it on. So exactly like Hong Kong used to do. Mm. Um, and, it just grew into the most extraordinarily successful empire. And at one point in its history, Venice controlled the whole of the Eastern Mediterranean. And it was all built on trade. 
Hmm. And as always seems to happen with empire, and you go, if you've ever been to Venice, it's just the most extraordinary city. And the sheer, you think you're in almost like a fantasy land because some of the buildings just are so opulent and so Hmm. wealthy. And it was extraordinarily successful. And there was various things that did for it. One of the things that did for it was um, Vasco da Gama going around the Cape of Good Hope in Africa and opening up entirely new trade routes to to the Orient, Mm. Western Europe. So it lost its monopoly. But gradually, like all these things, wealth creeps in and then it had all its little hierarchies and little monopolies and the state grew and gradually it grew corrupt and gradually it faded. But for three or 400 years, it was one of the most incredible places. So Marco Polo is always described, um, and he lived in the, in the, um, 13th century, tw- uh, I think he's, um, I, I can't remember his exact dates, but it was something like 1250 to 1320, something like that, around mm-hmm. about that kind of time he was alive. Okay. And he's described as a Venetian explorer. But of course, what he was, was a merchant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, many of the greatest discoveries, explore- explorers in history, you know, they didn't go out because it wasn't just exploration. They went out to trade. They went out to buy stuff, sell stuff, (laughs) generally enrich their lot. You know, you, you take something from your own country abroad that they don't have there. They pay you a lot more than you get for it in your own country. And then you buy something there that you don't have in your own country. You buy it there cheap and you sell it back in your own country and you make a profit. That was sort of, uh, you know, anyway, so he um, went off with his dad and his uncle and he set off for the Orient. And then at, a certain point, I think they started off by boat and then they, they ran into trouble at one point. Anyway, they ended up going all the way to China on the Silk Road. And at this point, Kublai Khan was the Mongol emperor and he was the mm. ruler of, of China. And he ruled all the kind of, not just China, but, you know, Burma or sorry, Myanmar, Thailand, Mongolia, you know, the whole kind of surrounding area. And um, he sort of rather liked um, Marco Polo and um, I think Marco Polo actually became one of his tax collectors <laughs> at one point. Anyway, Marco Polo ended up staying there for 30 years. And then when he came back to Europe, Venice was at war with Genoa uh, at this time. Genoa was a rival port mm. and somehow or other Marco Polo fell in, got captured by a Genovese fleet and he got locked in jail. And when he was in jail, in prison, he met this uh, writer called Rusticello of Pisa. Rusty, I guess that would be Rusty from Pisa, if mm. you were to translate that into, into <laughs> modern dialect. And um, Marco Polo started telling Rusticello his stories. And Rusticello was like, I've got to write this down. And he wrote it down. And this became... Um, well, originally it was called Description of the World, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a brilliant title for a book, Description of the World. But um, anyway, um, I think it eventually became known as the, the, the Adventures of Marco Polo or something like that. Mm. Um, anyway, and then there's, and Polo, Marco Polo tells all the amazing things that the great Khan was doing, the wonderful things he saw in China, the palaces, coal, I don't think um, Venetians were using coal at this point. They had a postal service, eyeglasses. Mm. But there's one particular chapter that I want to talk about, which has got the most hilarious title, which is 
how the great Khan causeth the bark of trees made into something like paper to pass for money all over his country. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I'm just going to read you little sections of this of this chapter because it's so funny. Um, if you're a if you're a Bitcoiner, but he says he's talking about Khan. Khan hath the secret of alchemy in perfection, making money from the bark of mulberry trees, trees so numerous that whole districts are full of them. And all of these pieces of paper are issued with as much solemnity and authority as if they were pure gold or silver. Uh, they put and then he describes how all the officials put their seal on it. And once the, the seal is on it, the money is authentic. And anyone, this is the crux, anyone forging it would be punished with death. Mm. So he's got, the Khan's got a monopoly on paper. And then we discover, and, and, and Marco Polo's describing this Khan in admiring terms. Mm-hmm, but in mm-hmm. fact, as you, as you listen to what he's saying, what he's describing is the most terrible fiat money system that you've ever heard in yourself. So firstly, if you don't use the paper, um, if you don't accept the paper, you get punished with death. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you forge the paper, you get punished with death as well. And I, I say anyone who dares refuse these notes is faced with pain of death, no matter how important he may think himself. And so when you realize you're going to die, if you don't use this paper, it's no wonder that everyone took them readily for wherever, soever, for where, wherever, soever a, a person may go throughout the great Khan's dominions, he shall find these pieces of paper current and she shall be able to transact all sales and purchases of goods by means of them, just as well as if they were coins of pure gold. And then we learn that any merchant arriving into the kingdom with gold, silver, or pearls was prohibited from selling to anyone but the emperor. Mm-hmm. And then, so the emperor had a total monopoly on trade, it seems. And then There's this wonderful line. He says, the emperor then pays a liberal price for that gold, silver, or pearls in those pieces of paper. (laughs) (laughs) So how easy it is to be generous with printed money that has Uh, no cost of production to it. uh, And if you have some of this paper and it got damaged, you could take it into a um, a mint or a printer and get a replacement piece at a cost of 3%. Mm. So he was making money, you know, on that as well. And so the net result of all of this was that he pretty much sequestered all the wealth of China and the surrounding empire where everywhere else else was left with his paper. And Polo went on, his treasure is endless, while all the time the money he pays away costs him nothing at all. <laughs> and it's just one. I mean, it's like it's exactly what's happening now with fiat money. Yeah. And merchants accepted Khan's money and his prices. What choice did they have? But it's also we see the convenience of this paper money because um, first it enabled quick payments. Mm-hmm. Um, Polo again says they are paid without any delay. And then the other thing he says is uh, about the Khan's paper is that it was vastly lighter to carry about on their journeys. Ten bezants worth of gold, uh, ten bezants worth of paper does not weigh one golden bezant. And so, you know, you do, I mean, paper money is convenient. Yeah. That's one of the reasons it took off. Yeah. Um, and 
But then he describes Khan had more treasure than all the kings in the world. Now, do you know what happened as when Khan died or as he was dying? <laughs> the uh, Mongol Empire soon fell into irrevocable decline. <laughs> <laughs> and so why. Marco Polo left that bit out. Yeah. So he sort of saw um, peak fiat, if you like. Right, right, right. But you you got the whole cycle right yeah. there. That's the, yeah, that's the whole gamut of fiat currency in a nutshell. Right? It is yeah. introduced for convenience, very much easier to transact in paper than it is physical metals. Uh, but it can only be sustained when its demand is compelled, right? So he yep. actually has to put them to the to the point of the spear, so to speak, to get people to use it, not counterfeit it, et cetera. Um, and it ends in social collapse because you, yeah, when it's broken away from its cost of production, we the human uh, tendency to for greed just takes over, and we print too much until the money becomes meaningless. And that was 13th century, you said? 12th and 13th. Yeah, 12th well, it 13th. would have been 13th century. Yeah, it would have been 13, late 13, late 1200s. Yeah, so that was one of the earlier experiments. I think China may have had um, some experience with fiat currency, maybe even before that. I don't, I, I'd read somewhere like the fifth or sixth century at one point. Well, the, the, the very first, um, China invented a form of the printing press. Mm. Long, I mean, I think Europe had it. Uh, I can't remember, was it 1489? Yeah, something? yeah, late 1400s in Europe. Um, I can tell you the exact date because it's in the same article. Uh, uh, 1436, Gutenberg mm. invented it. Yeah. Um, but the his was with metal blocks. The Chinese used wooden blocks. Mm. So they couldn't print, they could print, but they couldn't print with quite the same volume that um, Gutenberg, Gutenberg was able to achieve. And by the way, I'm just going to go off on a sidetrack, as I always do. Yeah, please. But Gutenberg, despite inventing perhaps the most important <laughs> invention of that sort of 500-year period or something that completely transformed the power structure of Europe, Gutenberg actually died penniless, owing money to his creditors. And in fact, the, his creditors came and seized his machinery <laughs> when he died. Wow. Because um, he was unable to turn his his network to profit and his, his printing press to profit. And the reason was that he didn't have a network. He had this mm. incredible machine. It's like, it's like having a brilliantly designed cryptocurrency. If you've mm -hmm. got no network for it, there's no point. Mm -hmm. And, um, and there's a, there's a, a, one of the historical commentators said something like, there's no point him printing 200 copies of the Bible. If there's only three people in his village who can read. Because what's he going to do with the other 197 copies? Right. And it was actually the Venetians, once again, who turned Gutenberg's invention to profit. Because um, what they would do is they would print, um, in those days, news was spread on the ships. You know, oh, you'd, okay. you'd yeah. give the news on the ships and he'd sail off to Constantinople or wherever he was and bring news of what was going on in Venice. And so what the Venetians would do is they would give each ship, you know, five copies of a pamphlet or something. Right. And that would be taken to wherever, Constantinople or Alexandria or wherever they were going. And then that pamphlet would be reprinted in wherever they were, they'd gone and distributed there. Huh. And there was a whole business of... You know, people would come to the ships to find out news and somebody would 
like they'd go to a tavern or the pub or something and they would read out these pamphlets because most people were illiterate, of course. Yeah. So people would just sit around and listen to these pamphlets, these bits of news um, being read aloud and rather a nice sort of communal experience. And, um, and that was so, but Venice had the network because of its yeah. ships and everything else. And that's how um, Venice turned the printing press to profit. They were the Venetians were the first to, to make money from it. That's incredible. So yeah, the trade networks were sort of like the ancient internet as well, because they're moving goods. So they also moved information. And all of that was, you know, back, you know, we talked about Hong Kong previously, this has so much to do with the topography of the location and access to the sea. Um, you know, yeah. Venice clearly had a lot of sea access, Hong Kong did as well, even ancient Greece, and the, the littoral had that kind of fractal coastline that made it really mm. dominant both navally and as a merchant uh, or a mercantile country. So Britain did yeah. as well. Yeah, Britain as well. So really, and, uh, and, and there's been arguments too that that's why uh, North America has been dominant in the 20th century because as we've globalized, we've had more coastal access to both East and West. Um, you know, it's helped us in, in a trade sense and from a military sense as well. Yeah, I I just I went to I had some work about three or four years ago that took me to East Asia, and I found myself in uh, Tokyo for a bit. But I spent a while in Seoul and uh, the surrounding areas in South Korea, mm-hmm. and you know, to me as a as a Londoner, someone in Britain, that's East and America's West. <laughs> yeah, and I was just amazed at. I could just really feel how many Americans had had come there and you could really feel the the American influence in that part of East Asia. And of course, and it felt to me as, as, a, as a European that sort of America had come in the back door almost. But it made me realise why America's, you know, got so involved in geopolitics in that area because it is just a sort of, well, I was going to say a hop, skip and jump across the Pacific. That's quite a big hop, skip and a jump. Yeah. But you, take my, you take my point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's just, um, for me, it's interesting to consider that we, our environments shape us so much, you know, like in America, there's sometimes this sense of American exceptionalism, where for some reason, um, and this is just maybe a silly patriotic notion where people think America's, you know, we're the superpower, so we're somehow a better people or smarter or whatever the, the, the exceptional quality may be. When in fact, it's just a historical accident or anomaly or happenstance that we happen to have this geographic advantage that played out over, you know, a century or centuries that gave us this uh, unique economic position that tends to be fleeting, right? These, you tend to have a superpower that rises for some time and then declines, like you mentioned Mm. with Venice and and others, Um, usually due to corruption in the hierarchies corruption of the money that ultimately leads to breakdown in trade loss of wealth and eventually um centralization yeah centralization and societal collapse so i'm just gonna i keep getting notifications i'm on these bloody whatsapp groups robert i'm just gonna quickly quit all these sure thing things you can probably hear them all going off telling me about some ridiculous shit coin that i should be buying (laughs) (laughs) Got to block out the noise. Yeah. So distracting. Um, right. I'm back in the room. Forgive me. There's a great piece um, 
written by Alan Farrington. Actually, I don't know if you've read it, and I would just encourage the audience to check it out. It's called Bitcoin is Venice, actually, or he's exploring ah. the economic properties and and history of Venice. He, he, he looks at a number of um, historical anecdotes, but he culminates with Venice, and he compares that to how how Venice sort of had frictionless trade, which made it mm. very wealthy. He analogizes that roughly to how Bitcoin enables more frictionless trade and how that will make the world more wealthy. It's a really interesting piece, and he's a great writer. Um, I, I think I've stumbled across that. But, I mean, Venice is just such a – I mean, it's, it's, it's such a great city, and they literally turned the most use – it was like – turning the Everglades or something into the biggest trading hub in America. It was just extraordinary what they yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point, the, the, it showed, right. The opulence of the buildings, mm. you know, um, we don't, um, we, we, the, some of the buildings there, when you go down the grand canal, you're just like, I we don't see buildings. It was more decadent than the houses you see on television programs about Beverly Hills. Just yeah. so opulent, you know. You know, to take another tangent, this is something we talked about previously, um, and I've been thinking about a lot lately, where you had mentioned beauty is truth, truth is beauty, mm. right? It was sort of the original reason we started collecting gold was for its uh, visual aesthetic beauty, which led to kind of its demand as money. And then we also talked about mathematic beauty, something like E equals MC squared and the supply formula for Bitcoin. The Jordan Peterson makes this great point that the construction in Europe, the law, like the cathedrals that took 300 years to build, um, all of this super opulent, beautiful architecture that was built largely on a hard money standard historically. Mm. So, so beauty really, uh, has created so much economic return in Europe and that people, people take pilgrimages to Europe, right? The, the tourism is, uh, the tourism has come off the back of that, that beautiful architecture has been, has paid for itself a hundred times over, right? And continues to do it. So, so not only is, is beauty kind of this window to truth, but it also is really pragmatically and economically very viable and 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 very uh, lucrative. So, and I was just there is was, there is I was going to say there is a relationship between the architecture of a society and its integrity. In my absolutely, opinion, absolutely right. It comes back to the time preference. Right? The the more sound the money is, the the longer term projects you can plan. The more sophisticated construction projects you can enter into. And so I just, the, the connection I was making was we had this, uh, when you have beauty and money, I guess you would say, whether it's gold or big, oh, sound money that tends to arise because of beauty, you end up with beauty in your architecture. And that beauty draws in, it, it has a huge economic return and benefit over time. Whereas the opposite is true on a fiat standard. If you go and you can actually see this. The progression is pretty stark in the United States, where we have, you know, some um, some more timeless architecture in the East Coast, um, United States, kind of on our when we were on a hard money standard, late 1900s. Or I'm sorry, early 1900s, late 1800s. But then you start to look at architecture and building and development more in the middle of the country post 1971. 
and it, it's really bad. It's really dilapidated and it's just, it's built not to last essentially. So it's, it's mm. so interesting how rooted the, the reflection of the buildings and tools we make is in the money, right? The, the, the less the money can last, the less we build everything else to last. I'm sure it, it and the communities like architecture causes people to behave in certain ways. Yes. And so you, for example, find those big blocks of social housing. I don't think you really have them in the States, but those huge blocks of social housing flats, yes. lots of people living in flats in tower blocks and nobody looks after the common parts. Right. Whereas if, 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 if an individual person owns their little plot of land, their little house, That's right. and they're responsible for it, then they look after it. And then the aggregation of all those individual people looking after their little bit results yeah. in something wonderful and beautiful and, and communal and everything else. And it happens organically. It has to happen organically yes. through everyone acting individually in you know, making his own little bit nice rather than some top-down state planner just comes in and goes, we're going to have this amazing, huge flat that's going to house 10,000 people. Yes. The, the net result is, is always inferior. Yeah, I think it was Churchill maybe that said that the buildings we make in turn make us, something to that effect. Like yeah. It actually shapes human behavior. And to mm. your point, it's you come and like talk about private property rights, but that's, there's two sides to that coin. It's private property rights are also private property responsibilities. Mm. If you own something, you have an incentive to take care of that asset and make sure that it's, it has a long and productive, useful life. Whereas if you don't own it, you, you get these tragedy, the commons situations where people just, mm. they don't care, right? They just try to suck value out of it. With freedom comes responsibility. Exactly. Exactly. And with responsibility and, comes, you know, wealth and. And happiness and well-being and, and everything yeah. else. Yeah. But when you see it, things get inverted. So when the state is looking after your health, Mm. You stop looking after your health. That's right. When the, oh my God, I thought I <laughs> put a stop to this. Uh. <laughs> That's my daughter. Right. Um, and, you know, oh, the state's responsible for education, so I don't need to teach my kids anymore. Mm. You know, all these things creep in. And, and so as the state... Um, you know, people don't understand. They sort of go, well, if you have um, social health care or social education, state-funded state health care or education, you know, if you don't want to use it, you don't have to use You don't have to use it. Mm. That's the argument that gets used. But, you, you know, you're forgetting the fact that it absolves people of responsibility. And yes. that distorts the way they behave. And, again, if you just do that across a whole population, the whole population is going off in the wrong direction. Yeah, it's... it's so, infantilizing it is right. and yeah. again on a sound money standard the government cannot afford to provide all that stuff uh, when i with and a sound money standard and transparent taxation where the cost of something is is immediately felt by the taxpayer right it wouldn't be possible because the taxpayer would go no i'm not paying for that exactly and so they so they obfuscate it with fiat money so it, it's a it's a vicious circle yeah it, it's this whole 
or you need this tactile feedback with reality, right? You need to know if something's profitable or, or generating a loss so you can adjust your behavior. And when there's this layer of, of fiat money in between, people can't, you can't learn, right? It's interrupting the learning process and all of that. If we consider that ultimately wealth is just knowledge, right? It's how we're instantiating our knowledge into the world. Uh, you disrupt the learning process, you, you disrupt the physical world. We, things are worse basically all around us. Um, there's this great quote I want to read to you too. I think just sums this up nicely. It says, quote, give a man the secure possession of a bleak rock and watch him turn it into a garden. Give him a nine-year lease on a garden and watch him convert it into a desert. That, <laughs> the magic of property turns sand into gold, unquote. And that's really what it's all Who about. Said that? I, you know, I don't even have the source. I just have the quote. Um, Lovely. That's what Venice did. Yeah. They turned not a rock, a marsh, but they turned a marsh into the most amazing city on the planet. Yeah. And it's what fiat currency reverses because it's a mm. violation of private property rights. Mm. So you're giving everyone incentive to behave irresponsibly and, and enter into these tragedy, the commons dynamics. 100%. Um, what should we talk about next? So I've got a really strange surname and I always wondered, I have actually someone I should have tried to figure this out actually before the call and I haven't, but hopefully you're going to have the answer. Well, someone uh, did the research for, it was an ex-girlfriend and she provided me this thing. I, all I know is breed love apparently meant wolf hunter at one point. <laughs> uh, uh, so love must be as in lupus wolf must be that kind of. Maybe it, it, it changed over time, you know, from uh, it, it wasn't breed love 500 years ago with some other um, combination of words, but it, it evolved yeah. over time. And she traced that, or she had the service trace that back, but maybe. Did you say, um, did you say breeder of wolves or lover of wolves? No, wolf hunter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Why would you, why would one hunt wolves for self-defense, presumably? I don't know. I could dig up. She get, there were two crests for the, for my two family names. And then there's just like a little history behind each of them that traced it back. And I, mm. yeah. well, I can tell you that Frisbee means village of the people from the Frisian islands. Mm. So, and there were, um, in the dark ages, basically, apparently you're not supposed to call them the dark ages anymore, but w when the Viking invaders all came over, they were Danes, and Norse invading Britain, but there were also um, invaders from the Frisian islands. I don't think the Frisian islanders were technically um, Vikings, but they were from the Frisian islands is sort of Germany and Holland, that part of um, Western Europe, Northwestern Europe. And, but people wouldn't have been called Frisbee just then. They would have settled somewhere. The, the, the village of Frisbee is in Leicestershire. And Alfred the Great, who was an Anglo-Saxon king well-known for fighting off the, the Vikings. He actually, after he beat them in battle, he, he bought them off <coughs> with a thing called the Dane Geld, which actually stands for Dane. I thought Geld meant gold, but in this case, it actually means yield. Hmm. And he would pay the Danes money 
Uh, there was a sort of border where the Vikings agreed not to cross this border. And Alfred the Great um, uh, promised, uh, uh, he agreed, if we pay you this money, um, then you won't cross our border. And it was really efficient for both sides because it meant that land didn't get ransacked or anything like that. And on the other hand, the Danes actually earned more money from it because the, the collection of taxes that they were paid this this yield was more efficient than uh, <laughs> looting and pillaging mm. so it kind of worked for both sides there's actually a brilliant i'm just going to get it up on the screen there's a brilliant poem called the um about the dane Gale by rudyard kipling but basically it was a it was a tax paid to to keep off the danes but so um but and and the village of frisbee is sort of just on the danish side of the border so, you know, that would have been as far as those particular um, invaders got. And so, but people wouldn't have called themselves Frisbee at that point. And we learn that people only had surnames in about the 12th it was, and 13th century. That's the only time people began to acquire surnames. And the Black Death had a huge part in this. Mm. And the reason is, is that Prior to then, it was only sort of lords and aristocrats and things like that who had surnames. And then the Black Death came along and I think it wiped out something like two thirds of the population of yeah, Europe or something extraordinary. Six million down to two million, I think. In yeah, it was world. something, I mean, it was an extra, I don't know where they get the numbers from, but that that's the sort of generally agreed figure. Yeah. And, but it changed it had a, in a way, it was a blessing in the sense that suddenly, for the first time, serfs who were the descendants of Roman slaves mm -hmm. and they were tied to the land. And oh my God, will it ever <laughs> stop? And the, I don't even know how to turn it off that. I think you can one, just mute we'll, your computer, perhaps, but that might well, mute, mute you. That might mute me. Yeah. Um, I don't get that many messages on there. So I think we'll just have to deal with it. Most yeah, of, most it's, of it's no big deal. Um, so, and so if you acquired some land, you would normally acquire the serf who worked that land or the mm. serfs who worked that land as well. So serfs were owned by lords, basically by knights and lords. And the serf would have to work three days a week tilling his lord's land. And the other three days a week, he was given a strip of land which he could till for himself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a pretty rotten existence. But it was interesting that 50% of his labor effectively was owned, and the other 50% of his labor, he didn't actually own the land, but he could till it and keep its produce. But when you look at income tax rates or, or overall taxation as a percentage of GDP in Western Europe and the United States today, it's pretty much 50%. 50 it's about the same, yeah. It's the same. So obviously, life's feudalism. Yeah. <laughs> but the in terms of freedom levels, the same amount of your labor is owned. It's in, in many other ways because of, um, you know, productivity and invention and so on, life's much better today. But yeah. the same, the fact is the same portion of your labor is owned. Anyway, the Black Death came along and it um, wiped out two thirds of the population. And suddenly, um, serfs found themselves in short supply. Mm -hmm. There was an undersupply of labor. 
And so serfs were able to start charging for their little lords in order to keep the serf from just moving on to another bit of land, would start paying the serfs to keep him. Mm. And many serfs were given their freedom. And suddenly the lower orders were handling coins for the very first time. Previously, they'd never um, held coins. And as a result, uh, this, these young upstarts started improving the way they dress. They started improving the food they ate. And um, of course, the lordly class hated it. And they brought in all these laws to try and prevent this new upwardly mobile class. There were sumptuary laws that dictated what clothes <laughs> people of whichever class could actually wear and what food they could eat. Can you imagine laws? Anyway, but the fact is they were handing coin for the very first time and leaders wanted to get their hands on some of that money. And so they started introducing poll taxes, which would be is a tax. Each person has to pay a nominal sum. Um, a, a poll meaning it's a tax on your head, basically. Mm. And in order to distinguish people for the collection of poll taxes, people were given surnames so that I could distinguish Robert, who uh, um, Robert the Smith, if I can distinguish Robert the Smith from Robert, uh, who lives by the uh, river, Robert River, mm. uh, who from Robert, who lives by the hill, Robert Hill, from mm. Robert um, Jack's son. So you mm. and so your surname would be based on your paternity, your um, profession, or some striking geographical feature where you lived. And those are the three most common surnames. And so the reason we have surnames is for the purposes of collecting taxes. And wow. in some cultures, um, yeah, it's a great, great little. Yeah. The original tax ID numbers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what they were. Wow. That's a great observation. And in Celtic cultures, you'd be given a surname based on physical characteristics. I think Kennedy means something like shaggy hair or, or <laughs> shaggy hat or something like that. And Cameron means brave. And there's, um, no, no, Connolly means brave and Cameron means crooked nose. <laughs> and um but yeah and 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 then you discover that ch surnames existed in china some 500 years bc and then we discover that i can't remember the name of the ruler i think it was suji or something like that um the reason surnames came about though was for precisely the same reason for the purposes of eliciting collecting poll taxes so there you go. You have your name because, uh, and so that's the point at which Frisbee, you know, Dominic would have become Dominic Frisbee because you're Dominic Frisbee because you live in the village Frisbee. So that's how I know you're di different to Dominic, you know, John's son. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. And so I guess at some point that just got adopted into a legal name uh, at the government level. Yeah. I don't I don't entirely know that, but I do know when the Peasants' Revolt came, and the Peasants' Revolt is the best revolt ever. Yeah. Um, they, they, they were called um, the, uh, I mean, they, we say it was the Peasants. They were actually artisans, most of them. Mm -hmm. They were led by a chap called, we know him now as Watt Tyler, but his mm -hmm. actual name was Walter the Tyler. 
<laughs> because right. he was a tiler of roofs and a low person. Uh, this is how he's described in the uh, chronicles of the time. But they, and they were led by, um, uh, uh, just excuse me one second. I just want to just check one um, name very quickly. Yeah. So they were led by uh, Watt Tyler and um, John Ball was their sort of, he was a preacher, but he kept getting excommunicated because <laughs> mm -hmm. he said the wrong things. And I, I always used to think, what's the problem with being excommunicated? But excommunicated is basically being no platformed. Yeah, like, deplatformed back in the day, right? Yeah. 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 And, and, he, and he, the, he was the guy that was preaching against taxation, right? Yeah, he was preaching. Uh, um, I'm gonna have to I, let me find some. He's got some great quotes. He, he did some, they did such funny things, but the um, I, I, I'm afraid, Robert, I haven't got the quote of um, no, I think I can. the famous one to hand, but the um, they he, he would go around preaching and um, he was saying one of his lines was that Adam and Eve. When, when, Adam and, when, when Adam and Eve were there, who was the gentleman was one of the things he used to say. Yeah. In other words, we're all equal. And it was a very kind of communist, anti-authoritarian message and the church hated him. And so um, they excommunicated him and, and he predicted that 20,000 men would take him out of Rochester, uh, Maidstone Castle, where he was imprisoned. Right. 20,000 men did take him out of Maidstone Castle, which suggests that the peasants' revolt was organized. It was quite well planned. Yeah, yeah. They also yeah. planned it while all the armies were away, fighting wars in Scotland and France. That's when they rose up. And they marched on London. And the mistake they made was that they... They thought King Richard was good. He was he was the child king. Mm. They thought he was good. They just thought he was badly advised. Mm. But Richard actually betrayed them and went with his advisors. But at one point they took London. And um, but one of their tactics was everywhere they went, <laughs> they killed lawyer. They killed all the lawyers, and burnt all the tax records. Yeah. And yeah. they opened up all the prisons. So most people were in prison for non-payment of taxes. As they opened up the prisons burnt all the tax records in the churches and the lawyers and killed yeah. all the lawyers. And remember that the church was one of the biggest tax collectors at the time. Yeah. And so, but to rebel against the church was, was quite a brave thing to do because you were not only rebelling against the power of the church, but the sort of belief system that had infiltrated everyone. Yeah. Anyway, eventually they were overthrown. But so I guess at that point there must've been some kind of, I wouldn't say people had ID, but there was some kind of formal record of your surname because they were intent on burning, destroying those records. Right. Yeah, they're really trying to overthrow the hierarchy, as you said, yeah. and break the system. He has this. I'd love it if there was a record today, because you know we couldn't we couldn't rise up and and revolt and um, destroy. You know, because the government's got weapons that ordinary people just don't have, particularly in Western well, America, yeah. you've got guns, but in Western Europe, we don't have anything. Well, that's but, what. Um, that's why Bitcoin's the best hope, right? You just opt out yeah. of the system entirely and then it it's hundred percent effectively. But I wonder if some hacker can get into the IRS and just destroy all the tax records. Boy, wouldn't that be an interesting day? <laughs> <laughs>
So one of the, that, the courts you, you, have do, your... you take down the system then if the, all the tax records have gone because they won't be on a distributed network. It'll be a centralized network. Won't yeah, it? you would assume they have backup and security protocols for that, but who knows, man? Anything that's in a centralized database is definitely vulnerable. Um, if there are any hackers listening to this, <laughs> you want to take down the system, go for yeah. the tax records. <laughs> You know, and and do uh, I probably shouldn't say that, but but you know what I mean. I can, well, I can say. It. Yeah, I mean well, that's the truth, though. If you want to end globalized theft, then just break the system that's tracking mm. all the theft. Um, there's a quote here from John Ball. It says, "Now the time has come in which you may cast off the yoke of bondage and recover liberty." So he was sermonizing people yeah. against the the system of taxation and he was kind of the original marxist too right this guy's in the 1300s saying we're not gonna things won't be fixed until we common commonize everything everything is owned in the commons yeah. yeah i think he fits into that category of people that if you put them on their political compass they'd be in the bottom core and bottom left quadrant and they they tend to be very anti-authoritarian, mm -hmm. but at the same time, very left-wing. Mm -hmm. And they, the flaw in their argument is that they, they think that, that they want to overthrow the system, but they want to replace it with more government. Right. They don't realize that less government is, is the answer. And so you see a lot of Jeremy Corbyn was a bit like that. I sort of think Bernie Sanders might've been a little bit in that category. Yeah. Um, you know, they 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 want to they recognize that the system is wrong. They want to change it, but their solution is just more of the system. Right. It's a very sort of common left wing thing, and and I always think those people are sort of that's why you get a lot of former Marxists who mm -hmm. become quite militant libertarians. It's quite a yep. common journey to go on, and I I, I think um, Ball would be in that category. I think there's a bit of misguided egotism there because I, it seems to me like the thought is. If only I were in power, I would pass the laws that were fair and equitable for everyone. But the truth is that you can't put anyone in that position of absolute control because even if you are the pure, you know, you're purely good and you do good in that position, someone is eventually going to fill that role that will bend the rules to their benefit. So the to your point, the answer is less governance, less control, more freedom, more liberty. Um, and that, that's the whole, you know, the Marxist credo from each according to their ability to each according to their need it sounds beautiful and utopian in principle, but it creates its precise opposite in practice, as we saw mm. in, in the 20th century. So we, we can't have, it's, it's natural law, right? You need preservation of life, liberty, and property. That's it. You don't want anything, else, no other government intervention whatsoever beyond those sort of three core tenets of morality. If you get beyond that and try to replace, you know, the profit motive and the price signal with this commitment to nationalistic faith, it fails. It just, it's a model that doesn't work, but it's very, it seems like people get caught up in that first order thinking. They just think that, oh, it's, it's as easy as just making everything common. Nobody owns everything. We'll just be in paradise. But then the, we lose all the coordination of the market economy and then wealth collapses and, and um, conflict ensues. You can't plan it centrally. 
Yeah. You think you can, but you can't. Right. And the way to do it is you just give, like we said, it's a bit like the houses, just give each little person their little plot, let them cultivate their little plot. And the aggregation of all those little plots is a great society. Oh, absolutely. There's another quote I want to grab here. Quote, simple, clear purpose and principles give rise to complex and intelligent behavior. Complex rules and regulations give rise to simple and stupid behavior, unquote. Mm. We just need simple, fair rules. It's like if you sit down to play a game of cards, you're not changing the rules every hand and fighting over who gets to change the rules and how they're going to be bent to favor one group over another. Like You just play by the rules, and in doing so, you develop these complex, elaborate strategies, right? You you figure out how to play the game. you could look at the game of Go, right? This Chinese uh, checkers game mm-hmm. has very simple rules, very simple moves. But the the explosion of complexity and strategy in that game is just, it, it's, it's cosmic, frankly. It's just gigantic. Um, chess is the same, right? It has relatively simple rules. They're fixed. But there's all this complex strategy behind it. So... There's a deep principle there that I just think humanity cannot seem to get their head around or they keep thinking, individuals keep thinking that they can do better than, than some stable rule set, that they, we need a ruler instead of rules. But again, that's what, what Bitcoin promises to be is money premised on rules instead of rulers. I, you know, I, I think I'm at best, I mean, I love history and I love finding unearthing little stories and anecdotes in history, especially ones that confirm my own biases. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Don't we all? But the, uh, um, one of the recurring things I notice from history is that you get these moments, like the, the Peasants' Revolt, they were, they, were, they were just a couple of bad decisions at the wrong time, mm-hmm. and they, they, they blew it all. They were within, they nearly won. And, but every time there's some revolt, some hope, there's some opportunity, chance to change things. Um, it, somehow or other, the rulers always end up controlling it at the end of it. And I mean, I guess that's life. It's never, nothing is, it doesn't never work out quite as ideally as you hope. And so there's this eternal struggle between, you know, people and ruler between those who would control and those who would be free. And it it just seems to have been going on throughout history. But what is, and, and, and each time there was a sort of chance to build this new utopia, you know, maybe the first guys who arrived in America in the um, 17th and 18th century, they might've felt like here we can have the new land. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they formed it and they made this wonderful constitution and, and, you know, they really seem to have thought it through um, a bit like the Bitcoiners have today, but then even, you know, eventually America got sort of corrupted in a funny kind of way. I'm not mm-hmm. saying all of America is corrupt, but it's, it's, it's a mess today compared to the ideals that it was when, when it was mm-hmm. originally founded in the went off the rails in 1913 with the inception of the fed it's all been down Um, yeah i mean there were there was those uh those key dates 71 13 you know uh, the the that civil war i mean there's a lot in that Mm -hmm. civil war we can talk about Mm -hmm. that's not for today's show but Mm -hmm. um but the point i'm trying to get to is that 
Bitcoin just does seem to be unique in history in that it's the first time that there is a genuinely independent, I mean, gold was independent, but it had the stamp of the ruler mm -hmm. and it could be abused by, the, there's a genuinely independent system of money and money is power, mm. you know, that, and you can, you don't have to fight anymore. Mm -hmm. You can just opt out. And, you know, I've been in and out of the Bitcoin space since 2011. But I've, it's funny, it's only in the like, last three months I've become more radicalized, I think, by, <laughs> than ever before. And I've I've just got into a sort of real, um, I don't care, I've got into what's this, I, I don't think I've quite got fuck you money, but I've got into a fuck you money state of mind yeah. where I just don't care anymore. Yeah. And I'm just quite happy to go, fuck you. I've got Bitcoin. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, and, 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 and in, I'm, I, I come from the entertainment industry and we've always been a bit reverential towards the BBC and reverential mm. to the guy who books this or that comedy club, because you want to make sure you, you, you get booked and you don't want to piss the guy at the BBC off uh, because you know, you, the lessons, your chance <laughs> of getting in the TV mm -hmm. series or whatever it is. But I'm literally just now, I just don't fucking care. I'll just yeah. go and find some, get sponsored by a Bitcoin company. I make my own TV programs. I literally don't care. It's just, it's such a great place yeah. escape. And, and it's just tremendously empowering. Um, I feel so much happier as a result. And, and it, there is, it's, it's, it, you're, you're headed for disaster when you say it's different this time, but there is something to Bitcoin that really is different this time. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And it's like, sort of like the the peasant revolt you mentioned earlier it's like once they were empowered right all of a sudden there was a premium on labor they were handling cash there was this renewed hope that led to this peasant revolt the difference now though is that we are armed with a radically new technology right we, it's we're in a transformative age i think i mean i guess this is not confirmed still but i do think we're progressing we from industrial the old to economy is just toast yeah there's still huge wealth there, but it's just toast. Yeah. And to your point on the fuck you money, it used to be a threshold of wealth, right? I don't know, 50 million buck, $50 million net worth, maybe was that number. But Bitcoin, based on the characteristics that it, the services that it renders unto you, really gives you this fuck you money of any denom, any amount, because you can just take it anywhere, do whatever you, there's no, there are no restrictions on the money. So you have this you don't need to be in sense cities of freedom. Anymore. I don't need to be within half an hour of, of central London. I don't need to be within half an hour of central New York or an hour of central, you know what I mean? I can yeah. go anywhere. Yeah. 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 It does feel, I, I agree with you. You never want to say this time is different, but I think when we progress from the agricultural to the industrial age, anyone that was saying this time is different was right at that time. So, like, yeah. you know, the factory thing really is a big deal and it's going to change the world. And it did. Um, this seems to me to be at least as similarly transformative as, as something like that. So. Yeah. And the, the industrial revolution took, you know, we call it the industrial revolution, but it probably took 40, 50, 60 years, two generations. Mm -hmm. The agricultural revolution was, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of yes. years. Yeah. Um, the digital re we, we are going through the digital revolution and the first breakthrough was i don't even know in the 80s the digital technology and then the internet and the 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 scalability and the instant replication and all that the mobile and then net. yeah all of that yeah. and then the next 
breakthrough was digital scarcity. Yeah. You know, because that solved, like replication changed a lot and then scarcity, <laughs> it was like, a, it was the sort of the icing on the cake or I don't quite know how, what the right analogy is, but. Yeah, the, the, um, there's this, so you, you, we've heard of postmodernism, the philosophy, right? Where everything like moral relativism, every, nothing matters. You can interpret things in any infinite number of ways. It's almost like the digital age was suffering from a bit of that before Bitcoin because there was no scarcity. You could just, everything was re reproducible ad infinitum. But Bitcoin kind of reintroduces these physical world constraints in the digital space. So it brings it, it, it roots it in reality. I think that's the big, the big thing here is we now have this bridge between physical and digital reality we call Bitcoin, right? It's like, mm. this thing has real value, like ultimate value in a monetary sense. Um, but it can be utilized in this, this domain that's, you know, in the, in the sovereign individual and in my, the, the series I've been writing lately, sovereignism, I call it the digital high seas. It's this place that's ungovernable. It's, there's a reason there's no permanent jurisdiction in international waters. Like it's too expensive <laughs> to tax mm -hmm. commerce there and, and patrol it and cyberspace or digital space is similar. Um, yeah, I think water is really interesting. Yeah, me too. Because we we think about land, like if you go into any, if you look at the Thames, the River Thames, in the seventeen, in the eighteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth century, there were hundreds of boats on there. You know, there weren't bridges. People crossed the river. They got the ferry across the river. People slept on the boats. It was the fastest means of transport. It was the way to get to another country. Boats were everything. And then now if you go walk down the River Thames, and I'm sure the big rivers in the States are exactly the same. In fact, I know they are. They are comparative economic deserts. There'll mm -hmm. be a few places where maybe, you know, Seattle or Amsterdam, where there's a few houseboats. Um, you know, on the whole, people just don't live in the river. Life stops at the river. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been all sorts of economic studies have shown how important it is to have clear property title uh, if you're to have economic development and economic growth. And one of the reasons that Africa has been so repeatedly stunted is, stunted is that it doesn't have, in so many places, there just isn't clear property title. And in the case of the River Thames, that applies because the water moves. And so that nobody actually owns the and then the, the 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 bed underneath the water is owned by a use it's a, a body called the port of london authority the bank wall is owned by somebody else and then the bank is owned by a third person so there's three people so it just makes any kind of commercial development really difficult because mm. nobody actually owns it and you know one of the big muck-ups with brexit uh, where they're arguing over is, is where does the boundary stop between the, you know, who owns which bit of water that just, it's really hard in the way nations think to, to be clear about who owns which water. Right. Now, if some Bitcoin billionaire comes along and decides that he's going to plonk um, an amazing concrete Island, I don't know, in the middle of the Atlantic ocean, who, I mean, I guess if a, if a government was, for, let's say he did it 
but in the middle between if he did it in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean between America and 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 Britain, I can see America getting a bit a bit arsy about it. But mm. if let's say he did it in the middle of the Atlantic between Brazil and Nigeria, okay, mm. like neither Brazil or Nigeria, they've both got <laughs> too much on their plate <laughs> to do anything about it. And then he just claims that bit of water. So it's it's like water's the one area where it's hard to develop because there isn't clear property title. But because there isn't clear property title, there is the opportunity to establish, you know, I mean, then that's one of the reasons why this seasteading, I'm not, I'm not mm. quite sure if this seasteading thing is taking off or not, but but the if it's just an idea, but there, there's definitely citadel opportunities. Yeah, yeah, it's really... Really interesting. I think the the analogy is great too. Um, so what? I mean, this all begs the question, which probably gets us into our next point: is like, how does the tax system adapt to this? As people move into these ungovernable, they're moving their business and capital identity into the, these digital high seas that you can't even trace your income to an identity. The identity may not even be a state assigned identity. You can now you can unbundle. I can go and earn set up different accounts to earn under different aliases and that can be paid in crypto or Bitcoin. And then, you know, the income tax system is none the wiser. So how does the income or how does the tax system, I guess, adapt to this new reality? Well, I can tell you what it should do and what it will do. And it's, I, I can just see it coming map coming out pretty much exactly as Reese Mogg says in the sovereign individual. You know, the tax systems were designed around a physical age. And if you look at Google and Starbucks and Facebook and Apple and Amazon, they have just run ring. These globalized companies, they have just run rings by the around the tax man by having their trademark here, their IP there, their yeah. um uh profits here. Profits there. Yeah. And, you know, they, I mean, even Starbucks, which is essentially coffee and shops as run rings around the tax man. But the digital companies, you know, where is Google exactly? You know, it's really not that clear. And now, and governments for the most part, have just totally, there's, they've made a noise, they've complained, they've moaned, they've like lobbied. The way governments have dealt with it here is they've lobbied Facebook. Like I paid more tax in the UK <laughs> than Facebook did last year. <laughs> How can that be possible? I had a good year, but I'm not a, I'm not a, whatever it is, a trillion dollar company or a three quarters of a trillion dollar company. <laughs> I can't believe I paid more tax. They lobbied Facebook. Facebook. That's so interesting. So they, and yeah, and they could just turn public opinion against these companies and these companies pay a little bit of tax, but they're only, these companies are simply playing by the existing rules. And so now you obviously know about DAOs, digital autonomous organizations. Yeah. Like Google and, and Apple and so on is still, you know, they're listed companies and they've got headquarters and so on. When digital autonomous organizations, and they are coming, it is actually harder to realize a digital autonomous organization in practice than it is in theory. Mm -hmm. But there are all sorts of people working at it and trying to solve it. And, you know, even Bitcoin, which is essentially decentralized, is sort of centralized in the way that, you know, the dev team is sort of a little bit centralized. And, and within the dev team, people have their own, little sort of niches and and so on so that so it's not 
in, entirely decentralized. Um, but, you know, there are sort of evolutions of it going on. And, but how are, how are governments going to deal with that? Decentralized organizations, autonomous organizations. They, I, mean, I bet if you ask most government ministers what's a DAO, they wouldn't even know. No, I have no idea. And let alone, you know, deal with it. And then the next thing is, is when individual, that the 50% of government, government revenue around the world comes from income taxes in one form or other, 50%. Yeah. Yeah. And most of the workforce until maybe 10 years ago was one guy working for one company, nine to five. And he'd go to that, he or she would go to that company and the company would collect the tax at source and deliver it to the uh, government. Well, Ernst & Young have already estimated that by 2030, and COVID's accelerated this, mm -hmm. by 2030, half of the US workforce will be contingent. Mm -hmm. Half. Yeah. So everyone, and particularly with COVID and remote working, everyone's moonlighting. Mm -hmm. Everyone's doing one job here, one job there, a little bit there, yeah. rise of the gig economy, all this stuff. And then more and more people are thinking, oh, actually, you know, I'll go to Florida, I'll go to Texas, I'll leave America, I'll go to Cartagena. And so you've got the rise of the digital nomad. Mm -hmm. And and if a digital nomad is spending less than that, we've talked about it already, but if a digital nomad is spending less than 183 days a year in any given country, he's not obliged to pay income taxes to that country. Right. He'll pay sales taxes and local taxes. He won't pay income taxes. And a lot of the time, digital nomads feel betrayed by their country of origin that's why they left so they feel no obligation to pay taxes to it many of them deliberately avoid it many um nomads are non-compliant simply because they just don't know who they pay taxes to mm -hmm. and the tax systems are too inflexible to adapt and the easiest thing to do is just not pay any taxes some it's deliberate some it's accidental um and more and more of them, I think the estimates are that already 50% of people digital nomads operate in the crypto economy it's in to some lesser or greater degree. That's only mm -hmm. going to increase. You know, I'm a I'm a guy, I'm a web designer in in Brazil, but I'm living in um Chiang Mai, but I've just got a job for a company in London. Mm -hmm. You know, who who's where where'd you pay the tax? And they're paying me in Bitcoin. Where'd you pay the taxes there? <laughs> it's just it's like how do you and how do you do the accounts? Yeah. You can't. It's just a bloody nightmare. So most people don't. And and so but this is the fastest growing workforce in the world, the digital nomad. Yeah. And and there's going to be 9 pe billion people in the world, 2035, of which um, 6 billion will be workers. So 6 billion workers in 2035, of whom half will be freelancers of some form or other. Freelance contingent, gig economy, you know, all that. So 3 billion freelancers, of whom one third will be digital nomads. And the, the, so that's a billion digital nomads. And yeah. we think, oh, it's just Americans and, and Europeans going to South America. It's not. There's a huge South American middle class that wants to go. There's a huge Asian middle class. There's a huge African middle class. Yeah. This is a global thing. The Africans all want to come and spend a bit of time in Europe but yeah. before they go home and, and or whatever. You know, everyone's on the move and it's just going to, it has, so the government's, they just, unless they adapt and they change the way they tax people, they're just, just, they're just going to be fighting and everyone's going to be going, you got to pay more tax. I don't know who to pay tax. And it's just going to be fighting <laughs> noise and it won't be solved. Uh, the way to solve it, by the way, is land value taxes. And we talk about that in an, in another program, but, but the, 
it, it, th- there's going to be this huge standoff. Meanwhile, government's got more and more obligations, healthcare, education, paying off its debts, interest rates go up, you know, all bloody nightmare, devaluation of their currency. And the, those trapped in the physical economy are going to be the ones who struggle. Yeah. And it really, we're going to have this two-tier system, and it's just so obvious. COVID's going to has accelerated some things, but it, the one thing COVID has slowed down is the movement thing. Mm. Made yep. it much harder to move. Yeah, and and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens over the next year. You know, whether all restrictions go and COVID disappears, or we get another variant and the vaccine doesn't work. And, and you've got to get another vaccine if you want to go to this country and, and blah, blah, blah. So the, the, the spanner in the ointment, the spanner in the works is, um, is what happens with COVID. But right. otherwise, that's where we're going. And governments are going to struggle to pay to meet their obligations. And many of them will fold. Yeah, it's it is a major transition, the likes of which we've never seen. And I, again, this is just one aspect of the impact of digital. It's a very big one. Um, but this alone, if we just stopped here and said digital technology had no other impact, this is a radical change. We're talking about the the fragmentation of nation states over the long run. So. Most nation states aren't that old. They are normal to us, but they are not normal in the context of history. Right. Yeah. It's it's a it's a relatively new dominant institution of the modern age. Um, and so the, the sovereign individual talks about this. They say that the 20th century conception, to your point, was like people have jobs, right? You have a career. You have you're a nine to five guy for 30 years, you get a retirement, whatever. But what we're going to do is shift into this world where instead of people having a job, jobs actually have people. So we're much more freelance-like. We're, we're free agents going job to job. Uh, the analogy I think they draw to is like Hollywood, where actors and you know riggers and, and cameramen, these guys don't have a career. They're just free agents that mm-hmm. coalesce around a project for a few months or a few years, do the job, get paid. And roll back out to free agent um, status and then repeat the process. So the whole world is shifting into this free agency mode of, of, uh, of work. And, this, and so you end up then with more and, of these. And all the evidence is, by the way, because there's, there's, there's a huge campaign from the left. Oh, gig workers aren't being properly treated. They need to be. There's a big fight to prove that Uber people who work for Uber are in fact full-time employees, not gig workers. And they won that particular fight. Um, but actually, most gig workers prefer gig work. They like the flexibility. They like. Yeah. They feel more in control. They can work. It's more on their terms. And so this argument that they're mistreated is is not necessarily true. And employers love it. Because they don't have to pay all the payroll taxes and yeah. maybe not payroll taxes, but the, the the burden of employing a gig worker compared to the burden of a full-time guy is completely different. So employers like it too. The yeah. one person who doesn't like it is the government because they lose all the employee taxes. That's right. Yeah. There's there's all the employee-employer taxes that roll off. They're not collected at source. The administrative burden rolls off. I mean, I, I've been a CFO for a number of companies. The difference between the complexity related to full-time what we call W-2 employee in the US, which is like full-time employee versus a contract worker. I mean, the complexity is 100 to one when it's just a contractor. You just put them up and send them money, right? Versus 
the W-2 has all these compliance issues behind it, you know, state taxation, payroll tax, social security, Medicaid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, everyone prefers it, but the government to your point. And in, so in this transition, we would then have, so the one of the main sources of government revenue collapsing, right? Income tax. How are they going to, that's going to only increase deficits. They'll have no choice except to print more money, right? To monetize more debt, to cover those deficits. This is only going to increase uh, the divisiveness between rich and poor, the wealth disparity, right? Through the money printing. It's also going to increase the price of Bitcoin. So all these digital nomads that are not denominating their activity in Bitcoin, probably going to have a higher propensity to keep their wealth in Bitcoin as, as more money is being printed, Bitcoin's going up in value. And I just, that's why I think this time is, is a little bit different because then you just have this hard money that no one can stop. Everyone prefers just kind of dissolving the power structures that be from within. And, and we again, even the people operating these power structures, they also wear a hat as citizen, right? The, the guys that work at the IRS or the government or anything else, they're going to see this happening too. And they're going to be placing their some of their chips on Bitcoin as this process goes on. And I think that realigns the incentives towards it. So the, the way I'm visualizing this is that Bitcoin is this what I call in my writing is digital acid in a way. It's just dissolving analog power structures from within. It's exactly what it's doing. And with every, I, I, I say this, with every pound they print or every dollar they print, government control extends, government uh, invades that bit further into the economy. But it's, it's, it could, it's only invading into the fiat economy. And it will invade, invade, and then destroy the fiat economy and the digital economy. You know, we will go, like, in the digital world, we've already gone where there isn't government. And in the physical world, we will only go where we're welcome. Now, you mentioned what you thought the solution might be for the for adapting the tax system to this new age. Is that something you want to talk about today? Or do you want to save that for um, I would rather save that for another time, Robert, because um, it does seem like a natural place to go now. So I'm just lifting this microphone because it's just drooping it. Um, the let, let, I'll just touch on it now and we'll talk about it more in another episode when I've done my homework on it. Okay. And so, I mean, just because just, I'll just reread the chapter and I'll just have instant recall of all the, the facts and so on. But the solution, in my opinion, is to stop taxing labor and to start taxing land. And this is based on the principles of Henry George, the Georgist. We've, we've touched on this, I think, the, who, who, who was a, a, a best-selling author he wrote this book about taxing land called the single tax and you would pay no other tax apart from land taxes. Mm. Now the, the principle of this, we talked about natural law and the, it goes back to a philosophy of the physiocrats who were around in the enlightenment. And they would, they said that there are two types of wealth. There's the wealth 
created by men and human endeavor and hard work and inventiveness and all the rest of it. And then there's the wealth that nature gave to you. Mm. And the wealth that nature gives to you should not belong to anyone. It should belong to everyone. You know, why should the oil beneath the Saudi sands just belong to a few members of the royal family? That should belong to every, every Saudi. Mm. Um, but what you create as a result of your own endeavor should be yours to keep and nobody else should have the right to take it from you. So the oil was always there, but effort goes into discovering it and extracting it. So the principle of land value tax is if you want a plot of land and you want it to be yours, you want exclusive rights to it, and you want the government to protect your title to that property, then you have to pay a rent to the community uh, in order to have exclusive access to that land. That's the sort of principle of it. Mm. And we'll come to how much that rent is in a moment. Um, and now let's say you've got two plots of land on Fifth Avenue in uh, New York. And, you know, that's the top address in New York, Fifth Avenue. Is that right? Or one of them? Uh, and yeah, I think that's right. Let, let's just say, or, or you know, Sunset Boulevard or something in, in LA. I don't know the, my names are my American <laughs> streets. I'm just... <laughs> um, so, and you've got these two plots of land and they're absolutely identical. And one has got a beautiful house on it and the other one is undeveloped. Both those plots of land, the owner of those two plots of land would pay the same, would pay the same rent because they're identical plots of land. Um, and the, and then you only tax the, the land in its unimproved state. So you just tax the value of the land itself, not the building that's on it. Mm-hmm. And prime city center real estate will command a high tax because it's because of the needs of the community. Everyone wants to be in the city center. Mm-hmm. That's why that land has value. And farmland in the middle of nowhere will have pretty much zero rental value. And the tax you would pay is a percentage of the annual rental value of that land. So let's say tax rates are at 10% and you've got a you've got a million dollar house, but the the if there was no house um on that land, how much could you sell that land for? Let's say you could sell it for a hundred grand. Um and what would the annual rental value of that land be? Let's say it was um, you know, 20 grand or 50 grand, assuming there was no house on it, you would then pay a percentage of that 20 or 50 grand, a percentage of the annual rental value. Mm. And the the good thing about this tax is it's impossible under this system, you, we're talking utopia, no printing of money's allowed. <laughs> right, right. You, you assume we're, this is, we're in a Bitcoin standard, so governments can't print money. Um, and everyone's got a little plot of land and we do need some kind of government just to organize whatever. In to this protect, point. right? To secure. Yeah, to, the, to organize the army, say, yeah. whatever. And then, so we each pay a, 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 a percentage of the 
unimproved rental value of the land we use. So the idea of this is it's a consumption tax. It's based on what you use rather than what you create. So you're taxing consumption, not productivity. So if you want a really big, rich, decadent city centre house, fine, you can have your really big, rich, city, decadent city centre house, but you're going to have to pay um, a, a higher uh, rent than the guy who's just got a tiny little cottage. Mm-hmm. And then, so the question is how much? Well, the, the annual taxable value will depend on, you know, the government then says, well, each government comes along at the beginning of its election. By the way, this is an easy tax to organise um, because you you just parcel up every, the land register has a, a register of every bit of land in your country. It knows who owns it and it just parcels it up into, into, into lots. Mm-hmm. And the government, each government, each party comes along and says, we're going to spend 20% of, uh, we, we need £20,000 to spend this year. And another government says, we need 30000 And the, the country votes for the government who's going to spend a certain amount. And the, 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 if the, if the person who has, is not happy paying that amount of tax, um, the, the, the same rate will be applicable across the country. It'll be 10% of the annual rental value or 20 or 30 or 50, whatever. And the whole country is going to go, no, 50% of the annual rent event, rental value of the land is too much. Mm-hmm. We're going to pay 20%. We want it to be 20%. And so it's a very good way of population and government keeping each other in balance. Mm. It isn't possible for one or the other to to, to step too far because the, the taxable rates go up and the, you get a revolt on your hands very quickly. So it's a negotiation and, more. Yeah, it just yeah. it's a natural way of keeping things in balance. Mm. And if you if you're sitting on an undeveloped plot of land in in on Fifth Avenue, um, and you're suddenly and you're just sitting on it watching fiat money depreciate and watching your undeveloped plot of land go up in value because fiat money's depreciating and they've built a new station at, at the top of the road. And because everyone's uh, now using that station, the value of your land's gone up. It stops all that because mm. you're, you, you're like, no, you've got to, suddenly you've got to pay for that land that's sitting idle. So suddenly you're encouraged to do something with that land or sell it to somebody who will do something with it. It stops that that just sitting on assets and waiting them for them to appreciate that whole little racket. So that's the sort of the basic principles of land value tax. Now, a lot of libertarians are going to hate it. I, I have long conversations with James Turk uh, about it, and he hates it. He says there should be no taxes at all. And I argue, and I have a lot of sympathy for that, and it is possible for taxes to be very low. Yeah. <laughs> but it's I would rather tax land use <clears throat> than labour. Yeah, absolutely. we assume that there has to be some kind of tax. So let's tax what you consume rather than what you um, produce. And it stops the monopolization of land. In fact, the game Monopoly was invented to demonstrate the damages of land monopolies. To, and so it was actually invented to demonstrate that this tax solves the horrible economy that is created as a result of land monopolies. Really? That's super interesting. Um I, I I agree. There has to be taxation because we we need physical protection of the territory. Right, that's ultimately what government really should be rendering. But it shouldn't be contingent on the income of those living within it because the service does not become more expensive the more productive the economy becomes. Right, whether the economy has a GDP of one trillion or ten trillion, 
the government securing the borders or securing that territory, their costs don't increase. In fact, they probably tend to decrease. The more people are trading, the more peaceful they tend to be, the more cooperative and interdependent they are. So if anything, tax rates should maybe decline relative to, um, to productivity. But in fact, we have the opposite today, right? The more, more wealth mm. we're creating, the more the, the parasite is consuming. So that's an interesting perspective on it though, because I, it would, that's basically a flat tax at that point. Right. It is. It would. It's a sort of flat tax. And the it's interesting because at the moment, the government that promises the most goodies gets elected. Right. Yeah. And And as you said earlier, to your earlier point, very easy to be generous with printed money. Right. Yeah, absolutely. As as Kublai Khan showed us (laughs) the uh, but so the government that promises the most goodies gets elected. And so we have this sort of vicious cycle of who prom- who can promise the most. And then there's a little bit of, oh, well, how are you going to pay for that goes on, but it's sort of brushed over. This will, be, will create a situation where the government that promises the lowest taxes will get mm. elected. The government that promises the least goodies, the government that promises it, um, to run itself the most efficiently and therefore mm. charge the lowest taxes and therefore you can get your, you can have your land on the cheap. They're the ones who um, get elected. And the government. Uh, and I think, I'm just thinking about it. I wonder if only those, no, 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 it wouldn't work. I was about to suggest that only those who own the land can vote but that would mean they all vote for lower taxes and their land ownership would be very cheap. And those who don't own land would be excluded. So I don't, I'm not sure if that would work or not. I'd have to it seems like it would maybe obfuscate a lot of the importance of voting too, because you're just sort of voting with your, in the negotiation process about which government does what, and then they're incentivized to render efficient, high quality services. And then that gets us closer to that ideal of the government that governs least governs best. Right. As long as there's peace and there's not a bunch of violent, you know, uh, anarchic activity, then the government's doing its job. Just get out of mm-hmm. people's way and let us trade and um, create wealth, essentially. Mm. So uh, we're at the we're halfway, about an hour yeah, and a half we, mark. Yeah. Can I just have one thing and then we'll, yeah. we'll do quick where we are. The reason that tax would work in this new digital economy, this new globalized economy, is that um, for a start, the likes of Google and Facebook and whatever would be taxed not on their profits or where their IP is or whatever. Mm. They'd be taxed on the land they use in whatever jurisdiction they're in. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and similarly, if if digital nomads use no land, then they would pay no tax. Mm-hmm. But if they come and stay in a hotel or a they rent a house in a place for six months while they're nomadic. Well, the, the tax, whatever they pay to rent that hotel room or rent that flat for six months would be reflected in, you know, that would eventually be paid off in some of that would go in taxes. So they would effectively be paying the land value tax to that nation. So it, it, and whatever they get up to in the digital economy is, is whatever, because this is we're, we're a government and we're only dealing governing the physical economy. We, right. We're not governing the and and if you want to use this bit of land, then you got to pay for it because it belongs to everyone. So it sort of it would it it addresses that. And if you've got some you know 
huge data center, uh, uh, you know, Google would have to pay a little and it wants to use the land for its data centers or it wants to use the energy for its data centers. Fine, you can use them, but it's got to play a little bit of uh, uh, rental for the energy and, yeah. the, and the land by the data center, you know. It's really interesting. Yeah, intuitively it makes sense. It's the first I've ever heard of it, actually. But um... the, the problem is you can't, like no government ever is going to get elected going, I've got a great idea. We're going to give you a new tax on land value. Vote for me. No government. It's just not going to happen. But if the they, evidence of it, yeah, but if, I mean, it seems like if a government proposed this super simplified, like we're, we're getting rid of the entire IRS tax code and here's your new tax code. And it's like a 10 page land value tax. It seems like people might be smart enough to, to agree to that, but I don't know. I think I think the risks of proposing it's just too outside the box. Yeah. Well, and, we'll and I, for... I agree that and and the evidence of history is that the point of land value, I think it's going to come by the way, land value tax, but it's going to be in addition to other taxes, mm. which is the worst possible thing. It's mm. got to replace other taxes. In addition to other taxes, is just a horrible bastardized version. And they'll find some way of making the queen exempt. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we'll just have to wait for Bitcoin to bankrupt and fragment yeah. the nation state. And maybe that's yeah. all that will be left is the land. Exactly. You, when you're building your new citadel, you build it based on that. Yeah. I just, you know, you only get taxes in new taxes, only get through the past the thing in times of crisis. If you try and introduce new taxes in times of peace, you you get thrown out of power. Right. That's the, one of the golden rules. Yeah. Makes sense.